Welcome to episode two of How We Win. The run-up to the 2020 election is going to be riveting, and every week we're sharing stories from the field. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We'll give you the tools you need to jump in and make a difference right now. On today's episode, Steve has a conversation with the founder and executive director of Women's March Los Angeles, Emiliana Guerrera. She has an incredible story that starts as an undocumented immigrant living in the Chicago projects and culminates with her helping to organize 700,000 people in the streets of L.A. and working to help win Democratic victories all over the country. Then you're going to hear about the North Carolina special election this Tuesday, September 10th, and how we can help flip a 41st congressional seat. All right. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is How how We Win. Hey, Steve. Hey, Mariah. Here we are, episode two. Episode two. Really Labor excited. Labor Day, come and gone. Yes. Summer's over-ish. Summer's pretty much over. Kids are back in school. Usually, like, official start to campaign season, which is always exciting. Yeah. An yeah. Exciting time. It's no longer about early organizing. It's like everyone needs to be in this doing it right now. Yeah, and there are people who are doing it. We're going to talk uh, about a special election that's coming up. North Carolina, Mm -hmm. looking to flip our 41st seat. The midterms actually aren't over yet. We have one more congressional seat to flip. Yeah. One thing that might impact that election is actually uh, Hurricane Dorian, which is, as of right now, has been uh, really devastating and also concerned for people on the East Coast that look to be in its path. We're thinking about everyone who's being affected by it, and it's always a good time to talk about the Mm -hmm. direct and obvious effect that climate change is having on, you know, these superstorms that we're seeing that get worse and worse every year. We have record-breaking, catastrophic storms that are a direct result of climate change. Absolutely. The, The warming, rising waters are without a doubt impacting both the size and intensity of the storms as well as the devastation and havoc that they wreak in in their wake and I know we have a, a lot of climate change deniers in in leadership right now we do. it's it's really hard to understand what they're thinking yeah they, yeah they don't, they don't a surpri- this is a surprise for surprise. Donald Trump yeah that, never that. heard of, never heard of a cat five except for the I don't know 15 20 times he's talked about it over the last few years yeah. Yeah, you know who's calling him out on this though is uh, Greta Thunberg, who's in the uh, states after a boat trip across the Atlantic, so that she wouldn't release any carbon emissions. Tell everyone who Greta Thunberg is, who doesn't know who she is, because she's spectacular. She's pretty impressive. She's a 16-year-old Swedish girl who uh, just started skipping school on Fridays to protest climate change, raise awareness in Sweden, and as a result is now in the U.S. where she's inspired other young people to do similar actions around the country on Fridays uh, and around the world. Um, And she'll be speaking at the UN Climate Action Summit later this month. That's amazing. It's amazing. And it's the the perfect example of um, somebody looking at the world around them and saying, what can I do, figuring it out, and inspiring others to do it. It's Greta Thunberg. Type her into YouTube. Check out her video speech. It's really – I'm sure most of you have seen it, but it's incredibly compelling. She's awesome. 
People like Greta are going to save us all. Yeah, young people. Young people. I, you know, I purposefully didn't say young people because I didn't want I didn't want to sound like really old. Like these young people, they're going to save us. Kids today. <laughs> the kids are going to do it. <laughs> uh, but it's true. Anyway, moving on to some more stuff that happened over the week. More mass shootings in Texas and Alabama, which is just more reason why we need to flip the Senate and get some politicians in there with mm-hmm. the will to move forward on this great gun legislation that the House has already passed. Yeah, we talked about this last week with uh, Congress member Katie Hill, mm-hmm. who um, shared a, a little bit of information about the bill that was passed in the House earlier this year that, of course, the Senate isn't even going to consider. Right. So uh, there are moments like these where, uh, you know, we look back we and our, and our, and our descendants are going to look back and say – what were they thinking? <laughs> right. What were they thinking? Uh, why Why didn't they do anything? And I think I mean, we've all had those moments where we look back on our country's history. But I think about Sandy Hook being one of those moments. And I think that August 2019, where 53 people were murdered in mass shootings, is going to be one of those moments where we aren't doing enough. We're doing some things. It's going to boil down to taking back the Senate and yeah. and having the majority there to get this legislation through because uh, Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. refuses to bring any gun legislation to the floor. But we just saw that Walmart's going to suspend their sales of handgun ammunition and they're going to stop selling handguns in Alaska, which is the, the last place they actually sell handguns. That's an incremental step, but kind of surprising to see from Walmart. Yeah. Uh, there there was a, a mass shooting at a Walmart in Texas last month, as, as everyone um, saw. So tragic that that's what it takes to to get a company to take action. But at least there's, a, you know, a baby step in the right direction. And I think as long as we do have leadership in the White House and the Senate that's so economically focused, focused on the NRA – you know, the change is going to have to come from the outside. So kudos to, to Walmart for taking that step. And to all the activists who have been pushing this to the forefront, yeah. presidential candidates who yeah. are all talking about it in no uncertain and strong terms. I'm looking at you, Beto, and everyone else. Um, I mean, this and climate change, two things we've been talking about yeah. right now, are the existential issues to us and to the world right now. But And—, and, and- the um, the majority of voters want change in these areas. Yeah, <laughs> even Republicans. Yeah. I mean, uh, background check legislation is almost ninety percent uh, favorable. It's like eighty five to ninety percent favorable. Don't quote me on the exact stat, but even among Republicans, even among NRA card holding Republicans, uh, they want better background checks. They want safer schools and communities. So yeah. Um, another reason for hope uh, is that the Trump administration appears to be reversing a decision that would have deported immigrants who are here with medical emergency issues. Right. This just broke on Monday. Mm-hmm. And um, many people may have seen the story of this uh, young woman, Maria Isabel Bueso, who is uh, a Guatemalan woman who has a very rare um, disease that um, uh, creates like dwarfism and some abnormalities. Mm-hmm. And there's been a uh, 
experimental treatment that has been saving her life mm. and has the potential to save other lives because she's part of this this program to test this drug. Mm-hmm. And the Trump administration was just going to send her back to Guatemala where her doctor said she would certainly mm. uh, get sick and die. Wow. So because of the public outcry over this and the attention that it got, they have reversed their decision on this. Yeah, I think this is this is a really important point because I believe that the administration had sent letters to a group of people who would have been impacted by this that led them to believe that they had 33 days before they were going to be deported. They had to leave in 33 days or face deportation. Right. And so thank you to all the people who spoke up on behalf of, of this group of people for, for whom de- deportation would have been a life or death uh, decisions. So, That's right. Yeah. That's right. It happened by making this viral, mm-hmm. by sharing these stories, by, you know, it just really blew up on, on Twitter and all that. So we need to continue to highlight uh, these stories and, and raise them up. Well, let's get started. For today's interview, I sat down with our friend, Emiliana Goreca, the founder and executive director of Women's March Los Angeles. Emmy, like myself, started organizing in the wake of the Trump election and ended up as the force behind the largest women's march in the country. Emmy, thank you for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, when did you first get started as an activist? I think for me, I think, I think I've always looked at activism as sort of a male space, mm. um, even as a young kid, right? I mean, I knew about Cesar Chavez before I knew about Dolores Huerta. I knew about, you know, all Martin Luther King not knowing about his wife, not knowing about anything else out there, Rosa Parks, right? Um, so I think, I think for me, activism was sort of something men did. And, but then moving into that space and not thinking, hey, this is unfair. There's a lot of women doing work, right? And so I think I think for me, activism started at a young age, and I didn't consider myself an activist. I just considered myself, <laughs> as my mom would put it, a complainer. Yeah. <laughs> I said, what do you mean a complainer? She said, well, you're always standing up. You're asking for equality. You're always asking. Um, I, I lived in Chicago, and I lived in what people call the projects in Cabrini Green. Okay. And so I'm a first generation. I was born in Mexico. So I was oh. born in Mexico. I didn't get to the States till I was a little bit older. Um, how, about how old? Close to 10. Close to 10. Yes, yes. We lived in the projects. We then wanted to move out of the projects and fair housing wasn't uh, rental. They would ask us, what, like, what's your income? What's your immigration status? Um, how many kids do you really have? To my mom, she had 13. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we would we were fighting for for equal housing. We were fi- fighting for housing rights. We were fighting for employment. But we didn't know that we were fighting. We just thought we were advocating and and just wanting Yeah, I was going to ask you if your your family was political or it was they were just political by necessity. I think that when you grow up uh as a woman of color, as a kid of color, it's necessity. You are an activist just by being born because everything is so against you that you must fight for every inch of it, right? Um, And you don't really know it as a kid. You don't know you're being an activist, but you do know that something's unfair and that you're speaking up, right? Um, So my parents were not... not, But not everyone speaks up. 
Uh, right. I think that's the problem. I mm-hmm. think more of us need to speak up, right? Yeah. But uh, my parents were not uh, activists. They didn't speak up, but their kids did. I know I did. I know my brothers did. My parents wanted um, to sort of be in the shadows. They didn't want to be out there making noise. Um, fortunately for me, I did have a grandma that was like, you you tell them. You speak English. Like, I was, I was considered um, actually special by my grandma just because I spoke English. I mean, I remember going to court with my dad at 12 um, for housing rights, and I was translating for my dad, right? I mean, there was a few cuss words in between there. (laughs) (laughs) Did you translate those as well? (laughs) No, I was like, Dad said a bad word. But as a 12-year-old, I was in courts because they didn't have translators, and I'm out there translating on equal housing rights. And we won the case. We actually won the case. Um, but walking away from from sort of that experience at a young age taught me that I need to continue to speak up if we wanted to be treated equally. Okay. So that was 12 when you started your career as a court translator. <laughs> <laughs> you continue going to school, growing up in Chicago. Right. So I don't think there were, we had a lot of options. We, you know, we were poor um, with 13 kids, I think, yeah. I think, um, and, and just living on Cabrini Green. But I knew that I, I wanted an education and most of my older brother and sisters didn't. I mean, my parents have a third grade education. Um, so I was the first one to attend university. I went to DePaul for two years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what my brother and I decided that we were going to get out of Dodge. We were going to get out of Chicago. We couldn't figure out how. So I, I applied for a, a, a transfer to UCLA. Okay. And um, I received a letter. This is how old I am. I received a letter. There was no email. <laughs> no, let's not bring age into this because it's not going to look good for either of us. <laughs> so I received a, a, a letter uh, stating that they were no longer taking out-of-state students. And I was floored, but I remember calling, um, the woman's name was Paulina, I remember calling her and and I asked, "Uh, are you taking in-state students? And uh, she's like, yes, we're taking in-state students. This was Friday morning. On Monday, I was at UCLA. Um, I drove from Chicago (laughs) to (laughs) LA, naive, because I didn't know the rules. I didn't know what an in-state student was. I didn't Uh. know how things worked. I was, you know, the first one in my family to even attempt this. So she explained to me what an in-state student was and that I needed to be in the state for three years. Um, Never mind, I didn't have scholarships. I didn't have real funding for school, right? So my parents definitely didn't have money. My dad gave me like $20 $20 gas money to come out. Um, but they were okay with me driving out, which is <laughs> uh, insane. Right. Um, but I convinced UCLA to let me start the semester because I was not going to go back home and say that I dropped out of school, um, that I was that dumb, um, that I was that naive. And so, and I had my cat in the car. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, they. I ended up starting the semester. Did you have uh, any any place to stay? Did you have a job at all? Was there any? I had my car and I had my cat. Um, once they accepted me into school, I would figure it out. So when, once they said I would 
could start the semester, I went out and found a job. I waited tables. You know, I started a clown company. I did— You started a what? A, a kid's clown company. A kid's clown <laughs> company. <laughs> I would work on the weekends at kids' parties to, to pay for to pay for school. Um, I waited tables at a restaurant, and now I, I co-own the chain of restaurants that I waited tables in. Wow. Um, so— Did you combine the two, waiting tables and clowning? <laughs> I or, think it was yeah. sort of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, That's amazing. So now you co-own the chain of restaurants that you started waiting tables at. Yes. Yes. Um, I remember telling my mom I purchased my first restaurant. She's like, that's not what you went to school for. Like, what? (laughs) My degree was mass media communication, and my parents were really proud that I was going to school. And so they wanted to make sure that I didn't work in a restaurant field or in a service industry Um, Mm. because— I was the educated one. But, you know, for me, it was more about making sure that now my other brothers and sisters knew the ropes of attending university because we, I mean, we had no idea how to even fill out an application. Okay. So I also want to get into when you first started getting into politics. Now, was it really like right after Trump? Had you done a lot before that or um, were you working on your business or had you always been an advocate and working in different political campaigns? What, what's your – No, absolutely never on political campaigns. I That's just not I, – I voted. I voted on presidential elections. That's as far as I went. I'm going to – I again am going to rage myself but I had a boyfriend register me to vote. I had a boyfriend ask, hey, Emmy – like on our third date, are you registered to vote? I was like, registered to vote? What? Because my parents weren't. My mm. friends probably weren't. Um, and basically, he <laughs> made it a baseline for dating. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it was like, are you registered to vote? And I'm, you know, I'm it in It was my... a very cute girl that signed me up for Greenpeace, by the way. And that's, <laughs> that's how I signed that petition. Like, yeah, I'll sign it. I'll sign Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We have a way of speaking to each other through food. It's really renewed for me, my love of what I do. It's going to take something far stronger than a pandemic to defeat us. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. See what we've got going on. Plan your visit at Baltimore.org. Um, but I didn't understand sort of the I, I, political process. You know, I, I voted. I remember my voting. But this isn't something that I grew up with. This isn't something that, I mean, I attended university. I attended high school. This isn't something that was drilled upon us to vote, right? So, no, I was not political. However, I did, I did, I do remember my parents um Attending like council meetings, city council Hmm. meetings for our district. Um, We lived in a bad neighborhood, so they made sure that they attended meetings to see what was coming, to see uh, my mom's. I remember clearly she spoke about they may not know us, but we know them. And if we continue to show up at these meetings, they know where we live. They know we're listening to the conversations. Um, And so 
besides they had donuts and coffee and with 13 <laughs> kids. I mean, <laughs> but we would go to these city council meetings. And my parents did not speak a lick of English, but they would sit there and we would translate and we would talk uh, about what, what the meeting was about. Um, but that was as political as we were in terms of the political process. Um, for me, the 2016 election I could say brought back like PTSD, really. I mean, I've had my parents deported in the 80s, in the 90s. We had our parents deported where they call us and they said, we don't have the necessary paperwork to be here and we've been deported, right? Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I found out haphazardly when I was applying for university that I didn't have a social security number, that I didn't should not be here. And then going through that process, having a, a uh, counselor speak to me on how to go through the process of becoming a documented citizen. So the election for me, I, I, I started listening on, on what could happen and what we had been through, which was deportations of our family members or, and parents, I thought would start immediately. Um, yeah. So and we weren't wrong. We weren't we weren't wrong about it. Um, so I did not get political until um, the 2016 election. I decided, you know, after the election that I was going to organize a march in L.A. So <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 where I started. That's where you started from. Like um, I've never gotten involved in politics organizing before. So I'm just going to organize, say. 700,000 people in, in the streets of Los Angeles. Right. I, I didn't think that many would come out, to be honest. Um, I've organized, like, community events. I've organized, like, chili cook-offs, like mm-hmm. a 5K run with my friends and figuring people to come out. Um, so I've done community organizing, but not at that scale, and I didn't think it was political either. Right. So, But, but that's a really good point for people listening to this and thinking, well, I don't know how to organize you know, a political event, or I don't know how to organize a rally or a march. But, it's, but, it's, um, but organizing, in a way, is really like throwing a party. Like if you know how to, you know, put together a really great party and invite some guests who are going to invite more guests. And um, obviously the scale gets a little bit bigger when you're talking about a huge rally at City Hall, 700,000 people. Um, there's police and porta potties that you have to deal with that you don't at your normal party. But you never have enough of. You never have enough porta potties. <laughs> right, exactly. But but that's how you get started, right? You know, there's there's no um, now. Obviously, you were uniquely suited for this because you have a background in running restaurants. You have a business. You're you're used to doing events, as you said. Correct. Correct. So. What did that look like when you so you said I want to organize a march? You had you know how did tell me how Women's March LA first started developing? Well, for for LA developed online. Um, we saw the the event happening in DC, and I as a Latina actually started organizing a march in LA because I thought I would get missed. I thought that the feminists organizing DC would miss the Latina. Hmm. And I also think that L.A. has uh, different issues in D.C. I think each community has different issues that we focus on. And so I wanted to make sure that 
that Latinos weren't missed. I really did. That was my main thing. But also, I um, met so many people online that were organizing. Um, there was a woman in, in North Hollywood, West Hollywood. So we were all sort of organizing pockets, and we ended up coming together as L.A. Otherwise, we would have had 20 or 30 marches across the city, right? And right. so when we talk about power and numbers, it's more all of these women that decided, yes, we have a common focus. We should come together and figure it out. Um, it was about, at the end, it was about 30 of us that were organizing in different areas of the city. I know there was a march in Compton that ended up folding into L.A. They mm. marched in Compton early on, then came to L.A. Pasadena did the same thing as Beverly Hills, as Long Beach. So although each community um, was organizing on their own, because this was all self-organized, none of us paid for buses, none of us were coordinating efforts in the beginning, um, the actual coordination did not start, I remember, till after Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving, we all decided we're all going to work together and come to the downtown streets of L.A. And that's, that's so powerful. That's something that I've seen over the last couple of years, the coalition building, which really builds our power. That's huge. I think that coalition building is underestimated. I think that each one of us wants to do our own thing. But at the end of the day, there's power in numbers. There's mm -hmm. power also in different leadership, I think, is really important. When you look at coalitions and you look at their leadership structure, you're like, OK, this person comes with this strength. This person comes with this strength. Right. So I think I think grassroots and coalition building is what is going to save us in 2020. I could not agree more, you know, because we get to work together a, a bunch and hopefully much more. <laughs> so you guys came together, um, different groups who were organizing marches. Um, you built your coalition. You were organizing for the first women's march in Los Angeles. What were your expectations? When did you uh, – how many people did you think were going to show up? What were you prepared for? Well, we in the beginning did not think a lot of people were going to show up. But then we started seeing the growth on social media. Yeah. We also started seeing the growth in our emails. And so we knew that it was going to um, be big. I signed a permit um, for half a million people. And I'm going to say that Metro and LAPD laughed at me. <laughs> they did. They were like, okay, this woman out of nowhere has, is signing off on a permit for half a million. And I remember people saying, Emmy, that's a, there, there's a lot on the line and you probably shouldn't sign for half a million. Why don't you say less? And I'm thinking, no, if I say less and the city is not prepared for it and we're not prepared for it, we're in trouble. So we signed paperwork for half a million. Um, so I think I, I think we did a pretty good job estimating. <laughs> <laughs> you did great. You undershot it by right. 250,000 people. Right, right or 200,000. 200, right, but roughly. I didn't say 1,000, which was what we were thinking. No one's going to come. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so Yeah, I sadly uh, had a hard time getting there because um, I took the metro <laughs> and spent a good hour uh, trying to get a train downtown. Yeah. And um, for Also, L.A. doesn't – L.A. people do not take public transportation. No. So this was new to everybody. 
that's another conversation we could have. <laughs> but because um, I grew up in D.C., where I I took the subway everywhere, you know. But but yeah, it the I mean, I I'll never forget that day as as many many of us who joined in on marches all over the country, all over the world, really, how empowering and impactful uh, that day was, the power in numbers, even being stuck on a subway platform for an hour and squeezing in on a train while people are chanting and singing, just crammed in together. Uh, I get chills right now even thinking about it. Um, You organized this. You organized this uh, march that was a pivotal turning point in so many volunteers and activists' lives that inspired them to say, you know what, I'm not alone. Uh, we're in this together and we have work to do. It was, it was really a stepping off place for me and for many activists. What, right. what, does, that, what does that feel like? I think I was overwhelmed. I thought that I could – I've stepped into organizing this march and we thought we're going to go back. We thought – for me, I thought I was going to go back to my normal life and run a restaurant, run an event production company. (laughs) 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 As did everyone (laughs) that that I organized with. And I think that – I think that it forced us to really think about who we are as people, Mm -hmm. who – what we want our democracy to look like and to use our, our resources, which at that point was our organizing power, our email list, our connections, to have democracy look like what we look like and, and, and demand more democracy. So I think that we went back to the table a little bit overwhelmed. I remember meeting the following day and it just rained the entire day uh, um, in L.A. And so I remember we were all sitting there and thinking, now what? Oh, my God. (laughs) You must have just been still running on adrenaline or something. I mean... No, I for me, I just was so ecstatic that one people came out that it was safe, but I thought yeah. also also that these are the people that are going to save democracy. These are the people that are going to continue to be engaged and vote, and we could not just leave it hanging. You felt a great responsibility yeah. to um, not let these people fall through the cracks. Correct. Right. Correct. Uh, and. T- it was – there were people that marched and said, I've never been political, and that was me. Yeah. I've never done anything like this. How can I help? So we started sort of funneling volunteers to other organizations because we didn't know where we were headed, right? Um, so we put to, we had put together a nonprofit, but we didn't know. Our mission was to march <laughs> right? mm-hmm. in November. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so uh, come January, we decide, OK, we, we want to do more. We can do more. And also, I think for most that organized with me, it was also that that feeling that as women, we had a say and we had power and we were going to use it to to help democracy. You had another march a year later. About half a million people showed up for that? Right, right. Um, 600,000, so yeah. 600,000 people. Um, that march for me was uh, was so different. At that time, I'd 
was really involved with Swing Left, and we were, you know, had our booth set up, and we were registering voters, and we were signing people up for action. Women's March LA uh, was getting involved in some more electoral action too, and helping out with the midterms and that. So there was uh, a much more focused kind of call to action in the air for that entire event. What what was that like for you? How how did your goals for the second march change? Well, I think that we, you know, we realize that there's more to marching. We realize that people want more and people asked for more. Mm-hmm. How People also came out to help us do more. I mean, I can tell you that I didn't know the electoral process. I didn't even know what races were going on. And But we started really focusing on local races. We started focusing on local L.A., Orange County, California races, because mm-hmm. um, along California, you have um, 18 chapters of Women's March. So we all decided that we were going to work on local races with the power that we had, which was coalition building, which was, um, you know, bringing in a mass amount of volunteers. I can almost say that we have an embarrassment amount of volunteers because <laughs> we don't have enough work for them. We don't. So this is where the coalition building came in. But I do think that well, I can we... help you with that. We always have <laughs> stuff for people to do. <laughs> well, now we've launched a C4 because we were a C3. Right. So now we've launched uh, a sister network, Women's March Sister Network, which is the C4 arm. And so now we are going to really be involved in in, 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 in in the local politics and local races and making sure we get people to the polls, making sure that we talk about the issues that are out there on a local level and how they will affect um, the communities. We just worked on Wisconsin. We just worked mm-hmm. on Virginia. Um, we text banked. We phone banked because it's important to know that also there's Women's March sister chapters across the country and across the nation, and they were ready to do some of this work, and they sort of weren't connecting the dots as to who was out there to um, help them with that process. So that's part of why we started the C4. We've partnered. And, and uh, just for anyone that doesn't know what a C4 is versus C3, can you sort of <laughs> so explain, C- explain that a little bit? <laughs> so, well, so Women's March LA is the C3. Women's March LA Foundation is the C3 part, which we do a lot of social justice. We do a lot of voter registration, a lot of education. And, and that's just like a, a organization designation that has different rules with what kind of campaigns you can engage with and and how you raise money. Absolutely. So the the C3 is the designation of the IRS that says that you are a civic engagement organization. You're able to donate and have a Mm -hmm. write-off. The C4 designation is more of a political arm. It's more of a political organization. You don't get to write-off. But you do get to advocate. You do get to work more on the political process, which is... For us was key because if we do intend on 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 having democracy represent us, then we need to be knee deep in in, in the political process. Um, we do want to back candidates. We do want to fundraise for candidates. We do want to um, put a female in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we yes, marching is great and it's a big statement. But unless we are putting forth a feminist agenda, unless we are uh, involved in the political process, we were not going to be happy, in all honesty. Right. For you personally, this has been, as you said, a very 
obviously life altering experience. You know, you mentioned, uh, and I was joke laughing about it, that you thought you would do this, organize this march, and then go back to your regular business and regular life. And I, I laughed because this work is such a gift. For me, it has given me so much. It's introduced me to people like you. This community that I've been organizing in, um, uh, you can't go back. You can't go back from it. And and then there's a responsibility for, like you said, all of these volunteers that you don't want to leave them dangling in the wind. You want to make sure that you're moving that needle, that you're pushing it forward. So for you in the next couple of years leading into 2020, personally, what what role do you want to play? What What do you want to do? So for me personally, I'd like to have some time off, <laughs> probably after 2020. Um, right. I think I think for me personally, I would like to I would like to step down as executive director uh, and move into because um, right now I'm co-executive director, but I'm running a C3 and a C4. Um, that's a lot of work, and we're also it's a startup. I, you know, and most people that have worked on startups know what that grind is to go out and fundraise, to, you know, continue to to put forth um, quality of work. So I think most people that really know me know I'm a hermit. Um, I am. <laughs> I would be a crazy cat I lady. I don't believe it. Yes. I don't believe that. You did talk about your cat in the car, but, you know, still... I now have two cats, two kids. I mean, I'm married. Um, I also think— I have, just for people listening, all I know about Emmy is her, like, with a microphone, kicking ass, screaming at people. So hermit is not the, you know, descriptor I would apply to you, but— but, right. So you're, an intro- I had a- you're an introvert that was forced into uh, into speaking. Yes, yes, yes. I, I like the behind the scenes. I like that. But I think that, I mean, I moved way beyond my comfort level hmm. of being in public. I mean, I've put together Coachella on the background. I don't need, I didn't need to be in, in front of cameras. But I think that this work has you know, move me beyond my comfort level. And I also think that most people don't realize that, and I don't know if you get this, but we get a lot of hate emails. I mean, we got kicked out of our last office because we had protesters there on Mm. a weekly basis um, Mm. that did not like what we were doing, did not think that women should be in that position or in that role. Um, And that's what people don't see. People don't see that. I mean, just yesterday I had four people in my office looking for me and they need to speak to me about work I did on Kavanaugh. (laughs) I'm like, he is already as Supreme Court justice. We moved on and but we're still continuing to organize. So I think for me personally, I would like to take a little bit of a step back. Mm-hmm. Only because the the being in the public eye isn't always good. Um, no. We've seen the bad side of it, you know, for for our organization. For me personally, um, the first year I had cameras in front of my house, my neighbors had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, um, but I I do think for me, right after twenty twenty, I would like to see our organization grow. Um, we all started as activists, as organizers, but I do think we need to bring in people with more policy experience um, because I don't want it to be a fad. I don't want it yeah. to be just, oh, this is it. We marched and then we go home. We can't. We have more of a responsibility. 
I want to mention one thing. I want to give you the opportunity also to clear up uh, a misconception that really came to the surface during the third Women's March. And that's the the split that happened with Women's March National and the anti-Semitism that happened there and how because you share that name, but it's a separate organization, uh, you've received a lot of blowback. And there was a, you know people who didn't want to participate in the march this third time around because of that. So I want to give you the opportunity to kind of clear up the difference in those organizations and talk about that. Right, right. So we all organized independently. Um, we all organized independently of what is known as national. So national is... Women's March, Inc., who is out of New York and organized the D.C. March. We all decided to organize under the banner Women's March because we were women marching. Um, But since its first year, um, there was a rift because we really didn't have... We weren't part of a national organization, and yet they spoke for us. Yet, no matter what we did, they were viewed as a national organization. So we were all independent organizations. Um, There was definitely, definitely a lot of blowback, um, negative press, negative media, that people didn't know what the difference was. And I think they still don't, right? Right. I think they still don't. Um, We're hoping to turn over leadership And we're hoping to really come together as a real national organization. I think it's a sad state of affairs, to be honest. It's a sad state of affairs that we are trying to unite the country, and yet we can't Hmm. unite ourselves and work together. Um, It's also, I think, bad for a women's organization to have this, this, this bad rift. So I think, you know, we're trying to find ways to work together. Uh, The anti-Semitism... Um, with Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour are, you know, I don't believe they're anti-Semitic. I don't. Um, but the response from them was inadequate. Their response was slow. Their response was clumsy. Um, and I am of the Jewish faith. And my children, I'm raising my children, um, in the Jewish faith. And again, this is now something that I needed to, um, respond to my temple, Mm. about um, why am I part of an organization that's anti-Semitic? And, I mean, looking at me, most people are like, she's a Latina. Why would she be Jewish, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, having to respond and having to also respond to my nine-year-old about why would people talk bad about Jews? Why do people hate Jews and Mexicans? Because he's a Mm. Latino Jew. I mean... Those were tough conversations, right? And so I think that that when we talk about anti-Semitism, I think that that it's it was insidious the way it was done, and I think that that the response was slow and the response was inadequate um, from Women's March Inc. Um, I'm thrilled to see what Women's March is going to do now in their new C4 status and the way that we can all work together, continue to build coalitions and uh, funnel all of those volunteers right. who need to do stuff, give them <laughs> give stuff them to do. Stuff to give do, them, for sure. You know. So uh, I guess maybe my last question for you is um, if you are someone listening to this program right now, what advice would you have for them for jumping in and doing this? I seriously would say that you should connect to an organization. I think that 
part of it also is that between all of us, we're going to find a solution. I would say that there's always something to do, whether it's a local election, a city council election. I think that when we think, oh, how did Ted Cruz get up there? Well, guess what? Someone oh, why locally, did you bring him up? This was such a nice someone interview. Someone locally, someone <laughs> locally elected him or yeah. someone locally did not show up to vote. Were you that person? No, I wasn't. Are you say, asking me? <laughs> I was not. I didn't elect Ted Cruz, Emmy. <laughs> I know you didn't. But it's like, oh, they magically appeared in D.C. No, they started out locally. And if we do not start to pay attention to our local elections, which are all doable, right, then we have to reconcile that. We have to talk about you. Yeah, there's something everyone can do locally. On a smaller scale, you don't have to put together a big rally or a big (laughs) march or any of that. But like phone banking, Mm -hmm. text banking, postcard writing is important. I mean, I phone banked and text banked for um, Stacey Abrams. And they were— She's pretty cool. <laughs> She's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, we actually went out door knocking in Georgia for her. Mm. Georgia, Texas, and Florida. We went door knocking. We went text banking. So Women's March C4, the sister network, um, we were part of that group that registered voters in Florida, Puerto Rican voters. Mm. Some Puerto Rican voters do not speak English, but they're citizens. So we registered the voters um, after Maria, and right. then we went back to actually educate them on how to vote, the early voting process. The uh, Spanish uh, um, gave them everything, had to translate almost everything for them on how to vote. I mean, that was an experience in itself, but I'm thinking anybody can do this, mm-hmm. right? Anybody can do this. I didn't. I had no experience. So whatever you think you have as a superpower, whether it's <laughs> being on social media, posting on Facebook, all of these organizations need your skill sets. And we all have a skill set. I mean, if you can write a postcard, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. Um, there is something for everyone to do. And um, please do it. We just finished, uh, thankfully, a successful midterm that we talked about as the most important election of our lives, and it was. But now, this is the most important election of our lives coming in 2020. Absolutely. um, So thank you for sharing that because there's something for everyone. Now, if someone wants to get involved with uh, Women's March, where do they find you? Women'smarchla.org. Women'smarchla.org. Or wmsisternetwork.com. Okay, cool. So go there right now, wmsisternetwork.com, and uh, bookmark that. Sign up. I can vouch for Emmy and her, like, Amazon powerhouse warriors who will get you into action. Where you are going to really make a difference? Where are you going to really help? Emmy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We want to talk about now how you can get into action. We have an election this Tuesday. Yes. The midterms aren't over yet. No, still going on thanks to a little corrupt GOP consultant. Yeah. Uh, Voters in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District get to vote again. Just a wee bit of election fraud led to a redo election. 
for that seat. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dan McCready, who ran last time and came very close to winning, uh, mm-hmm. is running again. This time against um, Republican State Senator Dan Bishop, Mm -hmm. who um, you may know him from his greatest hits, uh, sponsoring that heinous North Carolina bathroom bill. Right. Yeah. Remember when we were all boycotting North Carolina, North Carolina, the whole state of North Carolina Uh, because of his good work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the the this is this is going to be a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an opportunity to flip. A 41st seat, like you were saying. Um, last time, even with the corruption, uh, Dan McCready lost by less than a percentage point. Right. He's currently up by four points. And he's got the the Republicans running scared. Trump is actually going to North Carolina on Monday for a rally. The Republicans are funneling loads of resources into it. It's a big deal for them. It's also at this stage where we are right now since mm-hmm. the midterms kind of feel like they were a while, you know, a while ago. Yeah. And the presidential is coming up on the horizon. It's a good litmus test to see like where our activists are right now. Are they really going to show up mm-hmm. on a special election yeah. or are the Republicans going to be able to hold on to the seat? So the answer is we're going to show up right. because we have to. We have to win this seat and we have to show Trump and the Republicans that we are still here and the blue wave has not subsided. Yeah. And this is a, the, a really important time in a in a campaign cycle right before Election Day when every door knocked, every phone call made, every donation that can help get the word out through TV and radio ads counts. So there's a number of ways to to support uh, Dan McCready's race, um, but now is the time to do it. There's still time to make a difference, but it has to happen uh, in the next few days. So go to danmccready.com, sign up to volunteer. If you're close by and you can knock on doors, do it. Mm-hmm. If you're further away, make phone calls. Again, a Hurricane Dorian, we don't know the effect it's going to have, but certainly... Um, it will affect the early voting, which right. is already underway right, right now. So uh, we don't need a, more reasons to show up. We, right. we know that we need to show up in a big way. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and our work has to start now. We want to know, what would you like to hear on the show? What topics should we discuss? Who do you want to hear interviewed? Let us know by emailing us at podcast at swingleft.org. And we want to hear your story. Record yourself on your phone or wherever it's easy for you to do that and share a meaningful experience that you had as a volunteer and we'll feature you on our show. Try to keep it about one minute. Thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed, rated, and given nice reviews. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, don't forget to sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we're excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. We'll talk to you then. MSW Media.